Well, hello, good evening. My name is uh, Jim Hughes. I am a professor of comparative politics here at LSE. I also convene the conflict studies program. And welcome to the first day of, first evening of the LSE Literary Festival this year. Um, the uh, theme of this year is reflections. Um, it's an effort to look at the relationship between the social sciences and the arts. And uh, when Louise Gaskell, who's the organizer of the festival, asked me did I want to uh, contribute to it in some way, uh, I suppose she was thinking maybe we would uh, have some talking, ac academic talking heads talking about some book launch or something. And, but she told me the sub-theme, one of the sub-themes was the First World War, and for some reason I immediately thought, well, why don't we show a film, why don't we show Paths of Glory? Uh, and that's how it started. Um, I'm not a, a Kubrick uh, expert by any means. I like Kubrick films, enjoy them very much. Uh, this is a particular favorite film of mine. I don't know much about how it originated, how it was made, why I chose this subject matter. I don't know very much about the film at all, but I thought, why not show the film and get two experts who know a lot about it to tell me more about the film. So it's a very selfish enterprise this, this uh, particular evening, but I thought it would also be fun to do it with 150, 200, 200 other people. So that's the, the origins of... Uh, uh, of the event. Uh, we have um, two expert, Kubrick experts with us this evening. Richard Daniels is uh, from the uh, University of the Arts and is the Stanley Kubrick archivist there. And Richard will, in a few moments, give us an introduction to the film for about 10 minutes. Then we will screen the film. And we should finish sometime around quarter to uh, eight. Then we have free drinks out immediately outside the theatre here for about 15 minutes and then we come back in and uh, Michael Leader who is uh, from uh, film4.com one of the editors there uh, he will give us a short presentation of an with an assessment of the film and then we have about 20-30 minutes for questions and answers so that's the plan for this evening um, I would ask you to um, uh, not to switch off your mobile phones, but you can put them on silent. Um, apparently, LSE conferences would like you all to be uh, tweeting about the event. The hashtag is uh, hashtag LSE LitFest, if you'd like to do that. Um, the event is recorded in at uh, those sections of it where, where we are speaking will be recorded and then podcasts will be available at a future point. Um, so just please bear that in mind when, when we come to the uh, discussion part of the evening. Well, I think that's from the, it from me. Um, uh, let me then pass you over to Richard Daniels, who will give us an introduction. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. Can you hear me? Is that right? <clears throat> Good. So, um, Stanley Kubrick's First World War film, Paths of Glory, as all but two of Kubrick's film, feature films, two of 12, that is, was based and started with a novel. And the novel is also called Paths of Glory. That's a nice way to start. And it was written by a guy called Humphrey S. Cobb. Both stories are based on a true story in which four French, uh, four French soldiers were executed for uh, losing myself, for mutiny. Um, Kubrick started this film having completed uh, a heist film called The Killing. Um, this hadn't been hugely successful, but he had made a name for himself as a filmmaker and had actually been hired, him and his producer, Jimmy Harris, by MGM to work within their film department. And they started thinking about what is the next film we're going to make. And Kubrick always tells the story that he remembered a novel he'd read when he was 14 in his, doctor, in his father's doctor's surgery. And he went and got new copies of this book, gave one to Jimmy Harris, they read it, they decided this was the film that they wanted to make. They took it to Dor Sherry, who was the head of MGM at the time, and Dor, unfortunately, had been caught up with another First World War film that had come out in 1951. Oh, no, sorry, it was an American Civil War film called The Red Badge of Courage, 
which had cost MGM something close to $2 million to make and had only brought in $1 million. So he wasn't really that keen on revisiting the war film genre. So Kubrick and Harris were sent to MGM's library to try and find a title for a film for them to work on, which MGM already owned the rights to, and they picked The Burning Secret, a novel by Stefan Schweik. Um, But in his own time, Kubrick continued to work on the script for Pads of Glory alongside Calder Willingham and Jim Thompson, two screenwriters, novelists, which he worked with previously and continued to work with after this film as well. There was a huge shake-up at MGM. Dorsherry was kicked out, and it looks very much like MGM were looking for a reason to get rid of Kubrick, uh, Kubrick and Harris. And so they hit upon the fact that Kubrick was breaking his contract and working on a separate film, which wasn't MGM, uh, an MGM title. Um, so Harris Kubrick Pictures, as they were called at the time, were sacked, basically, which was a kind of double-edged sword. It meant that they were no longer had the backing of a major, major film studio, but it also meant that Kubrick could concentrate his time on making this project which had become, as all Kubrick projects were, a work of passion, something he'd fallen in love with, a story he'd fallen in love with. And so they started to take it to lots of other different studios. Unfortunately, nobody would touch it with a barge pole until one film studio which was a little bit more adventurous with the with the titles that they were creating and the types of directors that they were supporting at the time, United Artists agreed. But they agreed on one proviso, that they got a star. And so the next hunt, having found a story, having found some form of funding, the next thing they needed to do was find a star. Luckily, Kirk Douglas came along. Um, There were several actors almost up for the role. Kirk Douglas read the script, was very keen on making the film, but then he had to go and do a theatre show in Broadway, and so wasn't able to make the film, and they carried on talking to other people. Gregory Peck was in line for a very short period of time, and then Kirk Douglas became available again, and he decided to come in. They took the package of Paths of Glory, starring Kirk Douglas, back to United Artists, who agreed. The only problem being that Kirk Douglas took something close to 70% of the funding for his own fee, and he made a certain, certain other stipulations one including signing Harris Kubrick pictures up to a five-picture deal for his own production company, Briner, and demanding that Briner were listed as the production company for Paths of Glory itself. Um, Douglas, when he first saw the script, was really enthusiastic about it, but he had told Kubrick that he didn't think this um, picture would ever, make, uh, would ever make a nickel. Kubrick obviously realised that as well, because between Douglas signing up to join the film and him turning up in Munich. The whole film was shot in Germany. Uh, Kubrick and Jim Thompson had rewritten the entire script. Um, Those of you that know the film, it's about a group of French soldiers who are court-martialed and then um, executed at the end of the film. Now, the script that Kirk Douglas was faced with when he arrived in Munich has the screeching of tires as a general comes running out just before the execution's about to happen and um, the soldiers get a reprieve. It also was full of really what, what Kirk Douglas describes as really dodgy American language throughout the whole script. And he was kind of furious. Um, I've got a little quote here from his autobiography. Uh, he said um, he was livid and he demanded... Um, Kubrick explained to him why had these changes been made and Kubrick said because I want to make money Uh, Douglas hit the ceiling and called the director every four letter word he could think of and eventually said you came to me with a script it was based on a book I love that script I told you I didn't think this thing would be commercial but I want to make it I got the money based on that script not this shit and throwing the script across the room he yelled we're going back to the original script and I think, thank God we did. The um, third draft script, this happy ending script, actually sits within the Stanley Kubrick archive over at the um, London College of Communication. And it is, as Kirk Douglas describes, quite horrendous. So luckily he had the um, power to make those kind of decisions. 
Um, now, it's quite a huge feat to try and create the First World War in Germany, even very shortly after the Second World War. And they went to great lengths to make it as accurate as possible. Um, it took about a week to convert a farmer's field into an authentic trench um, and no-man's-land system, include, complete with an authentic crash biplane. Makeup artist Arthur Schramm had to find 2,000 authentic First World War-style beards for the actors and the extras. Special effects supervisor Erwin Lang had to go to court in order to get special dispensation to use the amount of explosives and TNT he wanted to use for the special effects. And he also developed a very new system for making those explosions using cork to make it look like the earth was exploding around them before lots of special effects of explosions were kind of puffs of smoke rather than actual um, earth exploding around them. And the production was fraught with problems. The US Air Force had to be asked to change their flight paths because as they were shooting, airplanes from the um, 1950s kept floating into view. Um, but most of the disruptions came from, the, from one particular cast net member, who we will see this, uh, this evening. Timothy Carey was the so-called wild man of Hollywood, and by all accounts caused disruption on set every time he was on, uh, on the set, and, and caused retake after retake after retake. But probably the, most, the biggest incident was involved when he disappeared and wasn't available for two days shoot, uh, shooting, and was discovered at five o'clock in the morning in the middle of a road tied up and taken by the Munich police, um, where he claimed that he had been kidnapped. The police didn't believe him. They thought it was all some kind of publicity stunt by the production company. And when Jimmy Harris, the producer again, went to try and rescue him, Timothy Carey was really uncooperative with the police and also with Jimmy, so they had to fire him. And that led to a particular change to the script. Originally, the three, or is it four, the, 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 four, the four men who were sentenced to death were actually also supposed to be in the attack sequence. That was filmed after the court-martial sequence, but appears before it in the film. But because Timothy Carey wasn't available for the filming of this attack sequence, they decided to pull all of them. And so you don't see any of the people on trial actually at any point in time during this battle sequence. Uh, just a little bit lost now. Um, Despite all of these setbacks, the film was completed in June 1957, and upon its release, it was really critically acclaimed, even though, it, it, as Kirk Douglas had um, predicted, it didn't really make a penny. It covered its losses, just about. Um, Hollis Alpert in Saturday Review called it unquestionably the finest American film of the year. But it wasn't universally well-received. Uh, United Artists chose not to release the film in France, it being a film about the French military executing its own soldiers for cowardice, they decided that it possibly wouldn't go down too well in France, and so they chose not to release it there. Unfortunately, French soldiers were able to access the film in Belgium and in the British sector of Berlin. And in those sectors, in those areas, they caused mini-riots in some of the cinemas. Uh, and this is all in the kind of press material about the film. Um, so that's, that's my kind of little potted introduction to the film. Um, I guess we start with the film now. Okay, well, let's um, proceed with the uh, discussion and commentary on the film. Michael, Michael Leader, film4.com. Okay. Uh, we'll talk for about 10 minutes, mm -hmm. and then we'll have uh, a Q&A for about 20 minutes or so. Okay, thank you very okay. much, Jim. Um, I'll just give a quick assessment of the film we've just watched. Richard gave us such a great context for the production. I was thinking of maybe setting it in context with other First World War films, and then opening up to maybe some themes. The canon of films about the First World War actually starts as the First World War was still going on. Uh, of course, cinema was quite a creative medium still, but still in the teens of the 20th century. So there are films, for example, Charlie Chaplin sent his tramp into the trenches, and by the end of the war there were still great works being created that took, uh, took the powers to task, 
or address certain themes or consequences of the war. By the time that Pass of Glory comes out in 1957, that's actually quite late. A lot of narrative ground has been milled over by certain films. And Kubrick really gives, I'd say, a very unique perspective, very uh, different perspective to a lot of these other classics of earlier cinema. And one way I think he does that is this film is completely shorn of sentimentality. A lot of these earlier classics in First World War cinema, including the Oscar-winning All Quiet on the Western Front, which looked at the Western Front from the German perspective, a lot of them were quite stodgy, and they looked um, at the experience of the soldiers with a great deal of, as as I say, sentimentality. Um, What Kubrick does here is he really pierces through an air of melancholy and melodrama with kind of a very searing black humour. I think the two generals um, uh, and the, the, the large chateau they live in is kind of, they're almost comic caricatures. And the way that Kirk Douglas approaches them, especially towards the end where he uh, declare, declares his grand judgment against the uh, absurdity of their actions, uh, really um, shows a, almost a dark... I don't know, ironic approach to this absurd um, column of, I guess, the way that the war was um, strategized. To go back to how Kubrick is, uh, quite uniquely approaches the war film here is that he, he situates Paths of Glory in a particular genre. Um, the first half of the film of course, sets up this offensive on the anthill, and there is that great battle sequence when there is this uh, impossible offensive. But the second half is a legal drama, um, almost a procedural with, um, with Kirk Douglas um, building his case. He um, finds the key piece of information that may save his men at the last moment. He also has that exchange with the, the general in, that, uh, in the library of the, of the chateau where he, at the last moment, says, oh, and one last thing. Did you know that the other general um, declared mortifier on his own men to stimulate a, another offensive? Um, the question then, really, is whether this is an anti-war film And that brings up questions of whether uh, the spectacle of cinema can really create an anti-war argument or message. And uh, Stanley Kubrick himself was very hesitant of messages being attributed to his work. He said that if the work is good, then what you have to say about it is usually irrelevant. And that kind of puts (laughs) us in a bit of a situation here, trying to tease things out of that. But really... This, as you saw really from the slide that Richard had from the press book, this film was being predicated just as much um, on the fact of the war film as it was as spectacle, as entertainment and excitement. And that's how the fact that it was released nearly 40 years after the end of the war comes into the fact this was a, a Hollywood film, maybe not created within the Hollywood system, but it's a Hollywood film with a Hollywood star, Kirk Douglas, as Richard said, um, had a great hand in not only making the film, but making the film possible. And it's this very interesting way of looking at the film through star studies, in particular, and see Kirk Douglas as, in the whole canon of Stanley Kubrick films, as, I'd say, the only idealised protagonist, if you compare him with the protagonists in Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, uh, The Shining. He... It stands in for a certain sense of morality and also is not really shown... He's not brought low at any point apart from against this great absurdity of the, uh, the court-martial itself. Um, and that's the, that feeds in to whether this is an anti-war film. I, I think that this, more, this film more calls um, attention to something I I think crops up in other Stanley Kubrick films, which is this inherent absurdity to conflict and absurdity to the way that war is waged. 
uh, that in the process of this of the legal case is presented as illogical, irrational uh, to any sense of human emotion, let alone legal certainty. But I think the question still stands, is this an anti-war movie? It's certainly one of the greatest movies. I, I think we, should, we could talk about the, uh, the Great Offensive as one of the greatest um, uh, battle sequences in cinema. The way that Kubrick shoots that uh, as a combination of tracking shots and close-up shots as well as the special effects of the explosions and the mass of men who are meeting their fate in front of the camera. There's a, it's dark and gritty and shot with a certain immediacy, but also um, there is a spectacle to it. Does that make it anti-war? War? Can we actually criticise or take an objective approach and point of view to war whilst also enjoying it? It's a question worth asking, and maybe one you might like to ask us now in a panel discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, well, look, we're, we're supposed to finish at 8.30, so I want to move immediately to questions and answer, uh, the Q&A session. So if you'd like to ask some questions, uh, I'll take a few uh, at one go. Yes, here. Um, it struck me that um, the film is, it wasn't either pro-war or anti-war, but really about the... PR and the presentation of war. So it was kind of accepting the inevitability that, you know, we, we would have to fight wars and what, it, what is necessary to keep morale up, you know, for the citizenry and the, the, the soldiers. And um, um, although I dislike the whole premise of it, I mean, towards the end I found... I rather liked that general who was who started the whole nasty thing off, because he was so I don't know compelling in a way in 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 in, in the way he enunciated the realities of of how you present a war and, and you know how how it's going and all that. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Here, that's right. You, you, please feel free to introduce yourself if you want to. You don't have no obligation well, to do so. Well, Sandra Sheppy, um. <coughs> I knew Hollis Alpert quite well <laughs> and had my own encounter with Kubrick. Too. I was at the original screening for, with, with the 250 Warner Brothers executives walked out of 2001 at the, I think it was the Astor Theater in New York. Anyway, the, my question or comment is that uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of a documentary approach and I quite like that. I mean, he started out as a still photographer and then he went into Killer's Kiss and I guess The Killing, which was sort of, again, sort of cinema verite, sort of a docudrama. And this uh, sort of follows that along. It was almost like a documentary. And uh, I think, it, actually, strangely enough, his first great film, big film, I think it's the best thing he, he's done. I, I've seen most of Kubrick and I think this is the best film he's done. Okay, thank you. Um, here. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that this is based on a real event, um, yeah. a, a scandal which reverberated, was suppressed but did reverberate around uh, the, the French military, got out after, after the war. It's also based on a novel by Michael Humphrey Carpenter, I read once, which had a slightly more optimistic side to it because one of the battalion commanders, when given the order to select someone, just refuses to do it and gets away with it. So there's a there's a sort of, I think there's possibly a Christian message in that about one of the thieves is saved. It's not necessary to believe that the system will totally crush everyone if somebody's prepared to say no. And uh, that's, so that, that's, that's the famous blackness of Kubrick. He, he chose the dark side only. And I think, on reflection, the, the battle scene is, is, is a bit baroque in that way because it's not plausible that they would have attacked over half a mile without having made some attempt at night to have crept forward with communications trenches and getting the no man's land down to the normal 100, or 100 yards or so found elsewhere on the Western Front. So it looks very documentary, but it is in fact a baroque elaboration of, of even, the, even the Nouvelle offensive. And finally, I think 
It's worth thinking that it's not so much about an anti-war or anti-war. It's Kubrick's deep, deep suspicion of, of organizations and systems. They don't, you know, whether it's the Roman Republic or the American Space Program um, or the, the British Home Office, they don't really mean you any good. And his heroes are the ones who realize that and stand up against it. And it's far more that than war than the film is about. Well, I couldn't agree more. I, I sometimes wonder, actually, whether Paths of Glory is a war film, or whether it's... If there is a war, this is one of those few war films, and in fact, you can never look at Paths of Glory without also looking at Full Metal Jacket, which mm-hmm. is him revisiting exactly the same story. And in both of those films, or possibly less so in Full Metal Jacket, you don't see the enemy. The only German we see in this entire film is... Susan Christian, the lady who's brought on the captive who sings at the end and kind of calms the, this rabble of soldiers. And in a similar sense... Who became his wife? In Full Metal Jacket, who became his wife. Yeah, I think that's kind of... Beside the point. Beside the point on this, yeah. Um, when it comes to Full Metal Jacket, you see a sniper and some Viet Cong running away. But other than that, the enemy is the officers... It are the people that create these loops, this politics around that grind the ordinary soldiers into the into the ground. They're these, and it's this, you know, ours is to do and die. These people have to die, and if they don't die facing the guns that fight that from the enemy, then they die facing our guns. Hmm. Exactly what the, the general says himself, and I, I think you're absolutely right in that sense. I think something interesting that both points bring up is this uh, collision of documentary style and, as you say, the Baroque. And I think there are some very telling quotes from Kubrick in interviews where he says that he doesn't see himself as a film director or a thinker or, a, or uh, he sees himself as a, on a par with writers, artists um, and, and, and poets. And while he comes from a, a background with you know, photography for Life magazine and, and so on, he mixes that with a, a sort of dynamics. I, I think that the, the imagery that he uses earlier on uh, when the, uh, they're going out to cut the wire and it's a completely dark landscape until the flares rise up and this landscape, this shot that you've been looking at which looked like just a, a nighttime shot is filled with corpses. That shows a very um, uh, an economical, I wouldn't say minimal, I'd say economical approach to the image that comes probably from his uh, background as a photographer. And then the, the battle sequence is this uh, yes, great Baroque sequence, but he does have, I think, a, a sense of dynamics and whether that feeds back into the sense of humanism. But it's, it's definitely a case where the system, the enemy is within. Um, uh, yes, indeed. So it's an anti-authority message more mm. than an anti-war message. I mean, one of the things that attracted me um, uh, was the uh, obsessiveness about uh, documenting and doing research, which is a very academic... I mean, the theme of this literary festival is the relationship between social sciences and the arts. And it seems almost like he took a very academic approach to researching his work. I mean, if you go around the offices here at LSE, you'll find... The office is full of, uh, you know, uh, papers that should have been thrown away years ago. You know, academics find it very difficult. Uh, they obsessively collect and they find it very difficult to, to get rid of their material. And he seems to have approached his work in that kind of way. Um, the other um, aspect that I thought might be worth mentioning is class dimension, which comes out very strongly in this film. Um, but let me throw it, we can bear that in mind yeah. and then we'll take another r- r- round of questions. Yes, here, at the front. I think this feeds into your point because um, it seems to be a rather undemocratic film in the sense that the, the central story is one of individual tragedy and the officer's understanding of it, conflict about it. The only democratic element is the very last scene where the colonel is judging his men who appear to be animals in the bar who are then calmed by the German woman's voice, which is the only time that we see some commentary on the collective 
of the soldiery. I throw it back to see how, how did you see that last scene and the significance of it? Okay, thank you. That's a very good question. Let's take a couple more. <clears throat> Over here on the right. Yeah. Uh, just a quick question. Wondering if this element of keeping the soldier alive until they could execute him, if that was based at all on historical accounts. Okay. And it was similar. Yeah, yes, there. I don't know if I can manage with this, but... During the First World War, as far as I know, the English soldiers or the English army actually had um, uh, an officer bought his um, officership, his commission, yes? And I wondered if it was the same in France, so that these idiots actually were leading the war. Um, and as Kubrick was pointing out to the, the weakness of these men, you know, where their own personal glory was what was important or what they could make out of it, um, was a result of that. Whereas I think with the German army, they'd already um, moved on from that. I'm not sure, but I'd be interested to know if you know that. Okay. okay. Thank you very much. Let's take that. That final sequence is very controversial and very interesting um, to, to, to talk about in relation to what the film's message may be. And I find it very interesting to, for you to say to take that particular tack that the... Uh, the soldier at the end are the rabble, whereas you might as well also take the point of view, and certain reviewers have, that it, is a, it could be a sentimental cop-out, or it could be seen that way, with this group of men calmed by a, a song, a good sing-along, and the way that it's shot with these uh, uh, close-ups of these faces, um, at, which I'm led to believe are uh, non-professional actors, and that's uh, Kubrick's experience as a photographer coming in where he's choosing faces that will tell a story in themselves. And uh, I, I'd posit that maybe that is a way of opening up the film after this very specific story of three men who uh, were tried and, and killed as part of a, a corrupt or absurd r regime. Uh, then a way of opening up to there are all of these men here and they all are moved by this story, by, sorry, by this song, so we can look in a little way, a tiny way at the end, at the emotional resonance of each, each single man. Um, and it could take the place in some other films, uh, other First World War films, which may fade to a, a field of poppies or a way of opening up the story to the, to the larger story of the, of the war. Um, and actually, I know Richard has, a, has an angle on this final sequence that actually wasn't part of the original script. It, it wasn't part of the original script um, and there is amongst the archive materials there is a large amount of press material that was created by a guy called Sid Stobel, he was the unit publicist and so his job was basically on a day to day basis to get the press in and get them reporting on this film that was being made to make it sellable once it was finished and in the, in the public and one of his very first statements is this is a really difficult film to sell I don't even have a woman to play around with. <laughs> and so what's really kind of scary about this is it is very, like, critics debate about this particular scene all of the time. And, and I don't want to take away from the impact of it. I think it's a really interesting point that you make about it being an, an element of democracy involved in, in what is generally an undemocratic film. So the art behind this scene stands for itself anyway, but it's an interesting thought that this scene was added, possibly, in order to create column items for, for the press. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think this, this idea that it does bring in this element, you do see, for, for most of it, you see one upworthy character and then these kind of scheming generals, and you never really get a take of the mass of soldiers. And again, if we go back and look at the way that Kubrick does this with Formal Jacket, where you get lots of individual interviews with soldiers and they all give a different opinion. And what we get in this is a, is a very similar thing. We have the soldiers as a whole are like a rabble at one point and they're tamed by this woman, but it shows this kind of collective element. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense, I think? It's, it's a shared experience they're it's all a having at the end. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but it also shows this kind of the different elements that, that you know you have these kind of like schemers mm. and even the soldiers there's you know the guy who uses a grenade and kills off somebody who he doesn't like who could possibly report back on him and then he mm -hmm. so nobody's nice in this pro in this film mm -hmm. really up until that last point 
I find it very interesting. There's a potential other take on the film, maybe a Marxist reading of it, which, um, as you say, there are the schemers at the top who are sending these generally working-class men to their deaths, and there is, the, there is a middle-class mediator who is Kirk Douglas in this, and it's a way of the, the, so, the social politics of the film. If you're reading that at the end as a, a, a rabble who need to be calmed by either sentiment or... Um, or maybe be defended by Kirk Douglas. There is that reading there that you could take from it. I find it very interesting that so many column inches, critical column inches, not necessarily publicity column inches, have been taken yeah. from this final sequence, even though it, it might not have even been there. Yeah. It might have been the sequence that caused the French soldiers to ride out of the mountain. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's take some more questions. Yes, here. Um, in a, a lot of his films, in most of them, women play a very small role, and particularly in this one, as you said, the only time... I'm thinking of Dr. Strangelove as well, where uh, I think the only appearance of a woman is a bikini-clad woman on the bed. And lots of... Uh, she also appears a hell of a lot in the publicity. Yeah, lots, <laughs> lots of reviewers, critics have called him misogynist, something that I, I wouldn't agree with, but uh, I wonder what your thoughts on that, that are. Okay, thank you. Any more questions? Yes, down here at the front. Hi, thank you for coming here. Um, I think you've touched upon these issues, but as it has been mentioned, the only appearance of a woman, of a kind of innocent, gentle aspect, is coincidentally the only appearance of the enemy in the film. Um, I was... Maybe I just wanted to say that, um, and I wanted to ask whether there's any kind of story behind the song in particular, whether the song has any <coughs> folk connotation or something um, that is more significant than the pure kind of gentleness or innocence of it. Thank you. Any other questions? If there was a German speaker in the audience, they might be able to tell us what the song was about, actually. And if you know? I can, yeah, I can answer that one. Okay. <laughs> Let's go here. Yeah, straight ahead. Yeah. I think the, um, the end scene, oh, I didn't obviously know that it wasn't put in until the end, um, seemed to me to be the key to it because the, the enemy weren't seen in it. She was supposedly a representative of the enemy and yet she was a unifying force at the end of it and showed a sort of cultural unity of the, all the people in that room. So I don't think they were regarded as a rabble. And um, the scene before it, the top general was saying that you need to be remorseless in doing very remorseless and... Uh, things to win at all costs and then the very next scene showed the, the enemy as being the same very much as their own side and I think that was the, the message in that scene Okay, okay so this, this lady as we've already discovered is um, Susan Christian her real name was Christiana Susan Harlan and did later become Kubrick's uh, wife and she was actually hired and then basically asked to sing a song can you think of one? And the song's called The Faithful Hussar, and it's a German, it's a quite traditional, I think, German folk song. Um, and and as, as you described, it's about uh, a father and his daughter or something, if I remember rightly. Mother and son. Mother and son. Okay, I get it the wrong way around. But yeah, um, that's that. We didn't answer the earlier question about, and I'm not sure whether you know, James, whether um, about shooting... No, no. Whether, whether shooting unconscious men in firing squads is acceptable, or, or did happen. Oh, it did happen, yes. Uh, uh, it definitely happened. I don't know. I, I remember seeing a figure, not that often, I remember seeing a figure of about a thousand-something uh, of, of these kind of executions. So not as many as you might perhaps have thought. Um, and as regards the commissioning, uh, you know, I'm not a historian, but my memory is that uh, commissioning in the British Army, for example, ended in reforms in the 19th century, late 19th century. Um, on the other hand, it seems like a very mainstream story, this, of kind of this lions led by donkeys kind of narrative that we're hearing a lot about as we move into this anniversary year. Um, you know, it's it's it's... It seems like a mainstream take on the First World War. Sure. You know, elite, upper-class officers, absurd, mm-hmm. idiotic, and working-class, heroic men who are cannon fodder. 
Yeah, and it continues as well. I think an, another one, great war film, I think, is Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron. Mm. And this is exactly the same. You do see the enemy in, in A Cross of Iron, but they're captive Russian soldiers. But mainly, it's again this competition between an upper-class <laughs> officer class who are just out for individual glory and this working class and I believe possibly the lead character is middle class again. Maybe there's some kind of theme going on here that we don't really um, get. Certainly a recurring yeah. theme. Or there's, an, there's a, another First World War film made maybe six years after this one, a British film called King and Country, which was Joseph Losey, um, the director of um, The Servant and The Go-Between. And it starred Dirk Bogard and Tim Courtney in a, in a, in a plot not too dissimilar from this one, where uh, Tom Courtney had been... Uh, charged with desertion, and it's actually a shell-shock narrative. It wasn't a cowardice narrative, but um, Dirk Bogard was tasked with the impossible task of defending um, this poor shell-shocked, shell-shocked working-class soldier against the, um, the bureaucratic upper-class uh, generals. And it's, it does crop up again. It is interesting. But the, the iconography of the First World War film, the idea of the lions before lambs and uh, going over the top, it was all very set in stone uh, visually early on in cinema. So by the time Kubrick is making Pass of Glory, he's stripping it back, I'd say. Okay. Sorry, I completely forgot. What the, you had a question about the... the... Oh, good. Okay. The story about the song, that's right. And we had one about women in women Kubrick. In Kubrick. Would you like to field, field that large question? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I'll, I'll expand on the Doctor Strange love, which I think mm. it, 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 it's true. Again, we only have one woman, and she's seen as eye candy. But in both Paths of Glory and Doctor Strange Love, and in a lot of Kubrick films, the men are crazy. The reason why... In the end, in Dr. Strangelove, we, li- we run to the end of the world is because one man thinks that women are trying to take away his bodily essence through sex and through um, infiltrating water supplies with fluoridation and things like that. And, and, and then you have this kind of giant pissing contest in the war room where all of these men can't seem to stop war happening. So I think whilst there are few women in Kubrick films... I don't think he is misogynist. I do think that actually he's almost an uber-feminist in that sense. Okay, I'll come back to you, but let me take a couple more questions. From Slightly tongue-in-cheek, though. I'm very far back there. Um, I would just like to pass a comment on the actual like, title of the film because it suggests at the very beginning that we're going to see this great assault on the Antil and... It never materialises like that, and in fact, at the very end, that's the person that's actually the criminal or the, the person that is held in most contempt in the movie, and it just seems that the people that we actually come to admire, because it says paths, so that suggests that there's multiple paths of glory, so we have these other characters that make errors in judgement, I feel, at the beginning, like uh, Kirk Douglas doesn't stand up for what he truly believes against the general but he goes through and then it's salvaging some sort of recognition through him protecting the soldiers afterwards. So it seems like there's multiple characters that are constantly trying to regain some status of absolution from their earlier actions in the movie, if that makes sense. Okay, thank you. There's something else on this side here. Although the singing scene at the end seemed quite at odds with the rest of the film, it did. See, it reminded me a lot of uh, of the the big scene in Joy Noel, which is obviously mm. set in the trenches as well. And you've got a beautiful blonde woman. I believe she's Danish, though. Am I right? But she comes, and again, you know, the the beasts are calmed, and they have the shared experience together, and they they sort of can cross cultural lines to uh, to share a moment. But it does seem like it's sort of the antithesis of what Joy Noel was about, which is quite, quite <coughs> sentimental and quite optimistic. Although you do learn at the end that those, all the, the generals um, are punished for, for this act of camaraderie with people from... from so in that sense, it's also quite different from, from what was expressed in Past Glory. Okay, thank you. I'm going to give you one more. Yeah. I think I think Kubrick is saying that um, that 
that men are totally impotent and that war is simply an attempt to invigorate. <laughs> and I think that's, it. that's the point he's making in most of his films. I think that was his belief. <clears throat> so, you know, if you could just get more, I guess, what, red corpuscles into, into the human race, I guess we'd be all right. Um, and my second point is um, Ren, Jean Renoir made a film about the, about the French and about, I think it's three soldiers from different countries in Le Regle de, de Jeu, uh, and he made it from a whole different orientation. I agree with this gentleman's comment to my left that uh, Kubrick was essentially making a film about, that's um, not social networking, but about systems and the way systems mitigate against the, indi- work against the individual. Um, and Le Regle de Jeu, Jean Renoir had a whole different take. That was not his point of view, but that was a film made by a Frenchman about the French army and uh, in, in, in contrast with uh, or embracing other uh, soldiers from other countries as well. Okay, thank you. Sorry, is that Le Regle de Jeu or Le Grand Illusion? Le Grand Illusion. Le Regle de Jeu. Okay, because uh, Jean Renoir... Okay, yeah. Um, the Kubrick film deals with this, the system mm-hmm. and the way the system works against people and, and manipulates people. I don't think Renoir had the same point of view. He felt these were human errors, and if human beings could kind of see that we're all the same, we, we'd avoid war and we'd get on. I think Kubrick was taking it a step beyond and saying, no, no, that's simply not true. It's that we simply, humans have a blindness, there's an impotency, and they invent systems that work against themselves, and they always will because we're on a down, downward spiral of chromosomal imbalance. And, uh, you know, unless we kill some more Jews, we're not going to get more red corpuscles on all of us, and therefore <laughs> the human race is doomed to extinction. It is interesting that the sense of yeah um, uh, paths of glory and I think the the idea of um, uh, Kirk Douglas as the hero. Sorry to go back to the idea of the star system. Uh, I find it very interesting that you took it as there was a fatal flaw that he didn't stand up for what he believed in, in at the beginning. I, I, th- I the way I, I, I read the film and is that really that doubt only comes at the end when he is presented with that devil's bargain, the Faustian pact of now you can have his job, you can have the general's job because you've shown some backbone. Um, I, I find very interesting as well in this, a sense of impotency that um, Kirk Douglas uh, is introduced as this broad-shouldered, bare-chested man. Um, uh, I, I wonder how much that might be the star system uh, creating that. Uh, in, was that for, for publicity as well, maybe? I've, I've not read the memo that says he must bear his chest, but you never know, really, do you? Maybe Douglas didn't see it. He was being sent up. Yes, yes, That's a very interesting point. I'd probably say that if Kubrick, if that was Kubrick's modus operandi, he'd be biting very literally the hand that fed his production by doing that. But and his entire career. And his defense. entire career, because three years later, uh, admittedly, it's not a film that Kubrick puts as a, as a high point in his filmography, but he was called back to direct Spartacus by Kirk, Kirk Douglas, and that was his first major Hollywood production uh, that, he was, that he helmed. Um, but I think that... That's the shift in genre, about halfway through the film. Kirk Douglas begins as this very athletic uh, corporal. He, you see him bounding across no man's land and pretty much vaulting. And back again. And back again. He just runs back again and he's still up for more. Yeah, and he's vaulting over the trench yeah. as well. And, and it's only really um, a corpse of a, of a dead comrade that stops him in his tracks. And really then it's the second half where it's, it becomes more internal and it becomes more this struggle of values and ideals against... Uh, the system. Richard, do you any comment on the um, uh, multiple paths to glory? Well, I mean, the title itself comes from the poem which I can, can't remember the name of the author now, Somebody Gray. And, and the phrase is... Sorry? Thomas is it Thomas Gray? And, and, and the whole of the phrase is the paths of glory lead only to the grave. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's an assumption with the with the with Cobb, who wrote the novel, that we know this, we know what that means, and really that's it. That 
all of the glory that these generals try and get for themselves lead only to the grave. Mm. The unfortunate thing is, it's not their grave. <laughs> and I, I think this, is, this class thing go, goes through the entire of the film, and it's mm. in there in the way that Kubrick films it as well. All of the generals are filmed in these big opulent spaces, but they're also filmed in such a way that you see them. They're all mm-hmm. in focus. So behind them you can see this opulent library, these beautiful lights and everything, wide open spaces. And then you get the trench, and it's cramped, and it's dark, and the dugouts are dark, and everybody is smaller and closer together. But you also, the camera always shows you the, their point of view. Mm. It sits behind the men who are on trial. It rarely sits behind the judges. Mm-hmm. And as the general does his walk through the trenches, all you see is his face, and you see the soldiers as he passes them, or as he addresses them. When Kirk Douglas does the same patrol through exactly the same trench, it swaps, and it sees him viewing his men, and his men are bedraggled, and they're sitting, and he sees them like that, whereas this other guy sees his, the soldiers in a completely different light. And I think that's all part of this class that, that drips through the entire of the film. It's true, and it's that sense of economy and yeah. how he was a total filmmaker. You, you, you mentioned the use of the camera and the composition. It's also there in the sound. Yeah. Um, the trenches are very you know, loud, lots of explosions going off. It's a very claustrophobic soundscape, but then when you go to the chateau, the mansion, it's very echoey, very large, very open. And also I find the use of music in the film, it's very, the, the rhythmical drumming, rhythm, rhythmical drumming for the for the front line and the trenches. But then the only piece of actual orchestral music used is for the uh, that the party that is thrown. Yeah, which which kind of plays up that sense of class. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, so I would immediately like us to thank our two expert guests for such a fascinating and informative commentary on the film. Thank you very much.